You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Um, Wonderful to worship with you once again. And now, after just worshiping in song, we're going to be worshiping in the Word and if you're a guest here, thanks for being with us. We're glad that you're here. Um, we've been going through the book of Galatians here at Redemption Hill Church. We love to go through books of the Bible, and we are in the middle of Galatians, or we're close to the very middle of the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, you can open up right there. Um, if, if you're new to your Bible or, or anything like that, just realize that Galatians is in the New Testament, so you can find it kind of in the back and you can remember there's, there's four uh, letters, or we call them epistles, called, uh, and the way you can find it is General Electric Power Company. I learned that when I was in seminary from my pastor. Uh, General, Galatians, Electric, uh, Ephesians, Power, Philippians, Company, Colossians, General Electric Power Company, and kind of figure out where you're at um, when you get to those books of the Bible. So uh, we'll be in Galatians 3, and we'll start in verse 1, and we'll go all the way to verse 14. So let me read those verses and then we'll dive in and see what God has for us this morning. Here's God's word for Redemption Hill Church on this day. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed, is crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged. On a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever um, been told this phrase? I, I know I've used this phrase, and I've been told this phrase. Uh, you should have known better. I, reflecting on my childhood, I feel like I heard that a few times growing up. A, a situation from my childhood could have gone a bit like this. I'll let you decide whether it's a, a true story or not. It, it was well known in our house that you should not put tin foil or metal into a microwave. <laughs> Seems common sense, but in case common sense did not prevail, especially with four boys in the house, my mom was sure to tell us all anyways. Please do that. Well, one day I was hungry, and um, I, I pulled a pre-baked potato out of the freezer, and, you know, just not to get on food for a moment, <laughs> but I'm going to. These pre-baked potatoes were the bomb. They were delicious. Uh, they had cheese, butter, like already in it, and um, basically you just you take it and you put it in the microwave, you cook it, and it, is, it feels like a meal. Um, and in zeal to eat, I put the baked potato into the microwave and walked away. And uh, several minutes later, you know, I, I begin to hear this like popping, like small explosion. Those in the other room, after I put the potato into the microwave, and these. Small explosions started turning into larger explosions until all of a sudden I, I had realized what I had done or what I didn't do. <laughs> I rushed to the microwave, but my mom stopped the minor disaster before it turned into a greater disaster by taking the potato out of the microwave. And, and, what, and what did my mom say? <laughs> Sean, you should have known better. She was right. I didn't listen. And I almost caused a fire. I should have known better. In Galatians 3, Paul is having his you should have known better moment with the Galatian churches. We say it's another you should have known better moment with the Galatian churches. After reminding the Galatians about how they in faith through being justified by God, he now calls attention how they are not living by faith. They were not living in the reality in which they were saved. His frustration is evident. His, here, here's how another translation describes Paul's frustration with the Galatians. We read that. In the translation we use here, the ESV. But here's a little different twist. Who has cast a spell on you? Are you so foolish? They were so blind that Paul calls them fools. Blind to what? They were blind to the power of faith through the Spirit in their everyday life. They were taught well. You know, they had Christian categories. A pastor preached to them. But it's clear they were not living out their faith in a manner that God intended them to live. They were not living in the reality of justification by, by faith alone, but they retreated back to the law or works. 
They should have known better. In order to see the problem clearly, let's go back before we go forward. I said two weeks ago that Galatians 2.16 is the heart of the gospel. Uh, you being made right with God, justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I said that the doctrine of justification is the heart of the gospel and it is the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. I also said as we, that as we turn the page from Galatians 2, to Galatians 3, which is where we're at today, we will begin to see the depth of our, of our foundation, right? Like you got a foundation of a house. And what you see is what's on top of the ground, but these foundations can go deep. So there are implications for being justified by faith alone. From this, we read in Galatians 3, Paul, with frustration, right, continues to build an argument as to why the Galatians need to stop believing the lie that a combination of faith and works justifies a person. He's also going to argue, after you've been justified, you cannot somehow be perfected, and this is his words, in the flesh, he built his argument in several ways, and this will serve as an outline for us this morning. First, Paul wants to show from the Old Testament how faith transcends the law. Faith doesn't negate the law, but it transcends the law. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And second, Paul is going to make the argument that a person's reception of the Holy Spirit could not have happened in any other way other than through faith in Jesus Christ. And on that point, further, once a person receives the Spirit, they are to live in the Spirit. Now, Paul's going to introduce this theme in Galatians 3, and we're going to hear more about this theme in Galatians 5 and 6. And third, the only way for the curse that comes from the law to be removed is by having faith in the crucified Christ. So Paul's focus is on faith and the effects of faith for a Christian. That's kind of the thread that ties these three points. Really, it's three mini-sermons. This is the thread that ties them all together, that keeps them all together. If you have faith, what does that mean? How do we know we have faith? What does it mean to walk in faith? So to help you follow along, I put these, these three headings on the slide behind me. And we'll begin actually looking back, verses 6 to 9, at the example of faith. And then we'll look at the promise from faith, that's verses 1 to 5. And then the curse removed by faith, verses 10 to 14. So if you've got your Bible open, that's kind of how I'll be looking at this particular text and preaching this sermon. That's how you can follow along. So let's look at why Paul dips into the Old Testament to talk about faith and how it helps us to understand how to live. In verses 6 to 9, Paul, really, it's just a masterful stroke to build his argument that a person is justified by faith and not through the law. This is just a masterful stroke. He goes to the Old Testament. Right? I mean, think about it here. He's talking to Jewish Christians. 
if he's going to build an argument, he's going to go to the place that they know about, that they rely on, that they look to. In particular, Paul points to Abraham. Now, why is Abraham important to Jewish Christians? Well, for Israel and for century Jewish Christians, Abraham is a father. It is with Abraham whom God gives a covenant. Theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. From the offspring of Abraham came Isaac, from Isaac, Jacob, from Jacob, Joseph. Just read through Genesis. Abraham has a remarkable family tree that would eventually lead to the greatest king of Israel, King David. Now, I grant for a moment that I'm oversimplifying, but, but this is just what I want you to know. This is what Paul knows when he's making this argument. Abraham is a big deal. Uh, you know, to use like sports lingo, <laughs> Abraham would be the goat for the first century Jew, the greatest of all time. And maybe you want to throw, you know, uh, King David into that, and all of a sudden you got people debating or whatever who's the goat for Israel. Well, he, he's at least in the conversation, greatest of all time. And Paul is going to go to the greatest of all time to show what God was really doing from the time of Abraham to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What's God up to here? To say it differently, Paul is going to show us how to read the Old Testament correctly. Because if you read the Old Testament correctly, then you will see the preeminence of faith for the people of God. <laughs> it's remarkable. And really, depending on how you grew up, people, people come to this church, we have different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, or might not be religious at all, but depending how you grew up, this might be revolutionary for your personal Bible study. How do I read my Old Testament? Well, Paul's going to give us some insight here. I mean, here's Galatians 3.6 again. Abraham believed God. You notice this is in quotations, right? Believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul makes his point by asking a rhetorical question, but what he is saying would not have been lost on the first century Jewish Christian. Paul is quoting Genesis 15.6. In Genesis 15.6, Abraham is given a promise. Elderly and childless, Abraham and his wife Sarai, they've been given a promise by God, a very specific promise here. It's that they would have a child. That's kind of the, the story behind the statement. Because it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham responds with remarkable trust in God. Abraham believed that God was going to do something that seemed absolutely impossible. I mean, just imagine a couple uh, who are 90 years old, right? And God says, you're going to have a kid. Like, we can't wrap our brains around that reality. And that's what's going on with Abraham and Sarai. You can have a child. And that's what the text says in Abraham. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and 
he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, before the law was given, we see God saying that Abraham was righteous. We see that he was righteous. Hmm. Much to ponder. Much more that could be said here. He was made righteous, not because of any works performed, right? But God made him righteous because of God's gracious choice. Abraham did not obey the law because the law did not exist, but Abraham was made right with God because he trusted God. Abraham believed God was going to fulfill what he promised. So what is Paul's point, right? That's the, that's the backstory of what Paul is saying about Abraham. What's, what's his point? Where's he headed by showing us that Abraham was a man of faith? Paul's point is that because of faith, you, Christian, are somehow connected to Abraham's family tree. You are, therefore, a recipient of the promises given to God to Abraham because of faith. Now, Abraham got this one specific promise about a child, but from that child, more promises were made. For a moment, think about your biological family, right? What connects you? Well, blood, right? Blood connects you. Like, just do your Ancestry.com, whatever the latest trend is about finding out where, you know, who your ancestors are. Right? Say St. Patrick's Day. I got great hope that I got a lot of I got a lot of Irish backing, uh, a lot of ancestry because I make a I make a big deal out of that every year. I'm Irish, Sean Patrick Powers, right? Have you ever thought about how adoption fits into the family tree? Often a child is adopted because parents love a young child. And in most cases, the child isn't given a choice. But out of love, parents take a child into their family. And all of a sudden, that adopted child is a part of a family tree. God's family tree from Abraham to today is full of adopted children, not because of blood, but because of faith. Here's another stunning revelation about God's grand plan to justify a people for himself through faith in Christ. Uh, before the birth of Christ, it says in verse 8, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now think about that statement. The gospel was preached to Abraham. That is a stunning statement. Verse 8 is remarkable. Why? The gospel was preached to Abraham so that the nations, the Gentiles, right? That's the language we read about in the New Testament. The Gentiles would be a part of God's family tree. The gospel has never been for one specific group of people. And so there are missiological implications here. The gospel isn't just for one ethnic culture. The gospel isn't for just one particular race. The gospel isn't just for Americans, right? There's no American gospel. There's the gospel. The gospel is for all who believe in Jesus. Now, how can Paul say this? 
Once again, he's reading his Old Testament. When God first called Abraham, God speaks to him. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now hold on to that word curse, because that's going to show up at the end of this sermon. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, the offspring of Abraham will be blessed by God through Christ. God will eventually bless those who trust in God. What this means that any Christian sitting in this room, any Christian living in China, Bolivia, France, Iran, Russia, etc., is a part of Abraham's family tree. They are a part of God's adopted family. Paul is trying to show the Galatians that, the, that God's gospel mission is much bigger than the Judaizers were telling them. Like the Judaizers were thinking in a silo. Like all they could see were the, were, were the things right in front of them. And it was just this way. But God was up to something much bigger outside of that silo. The, God's gospel mission is for the Gentiles. And so Abraham is an example of what it means to be made right with God, to have faith. And Paul was helping the Galatians and us to see it in the Old Testament. So, next time you read your Old Testament, especially when you're in Genesis and Exodus, keep Abraham and his faith in mind. That's going to it's going to help you read your Old Testament. If Paul is making an argument, excuse me, that the preeminence of faith extends back to Father Abraham, then what secures and sustains faith, right? Paul's answer is the Holy Spirit, and that's verses 1 to 5. Let's look, let's look at that. Paul continues to build his argument by showing us where the Spirit comes from. And what it means to live a spirit-filled life, right? Paul needs to talk about the Holy Spirit for many reasons, but one apparent reason is like the Holy Spirit's God. It's the Holy Spirit that unites us, that unites a Christian to Christ. So the first question Paul addresses is, how does a person receive the Holy Spirit? In a series of questions where Paul is hammering at the Galatians, he says in verses 2 and 5, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Like, where, where did you get the Spirit? And then he, he says this, as we already read, He's so foolish. You should know the answer. And then in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I think Paul is just beside himself as he's writing this letter to the Galatian churches. But he, as I've said in the past, throughout this sermon series, he isn't giving up on the churches in Galatia. Speaking in the past tense, in verse 2, Paul wants them to see the Holy Spirit was not given to them because of anything they had done, right? They received the Holy Spirit because of faith in Jesus. So what this means... and this is only, you know, was built out in Galatians 2. Paul has justification in view because the law cannot supply the Spirit. In verse 5, however, Paul changes his tense from the past, talking about what God has done in Christ by giving faith, 
to what he is doing. It's a present tense here. He is saying, right now, the works of the Spirit are at work because you believe. Paul wants the Galatians to look at the miracles being done in their communities. Look around, guys. See the miracles being done. Does the Spirit from the law make miracles happen? Is that, is that how the miracles are, are, are taking place? Is that what's happening? No. No way. The Spirit which flows from faith is why miracles are happening. And that's just, he's just trying to give a, a tangible example of what the Spirit's doing. I want to linger here uh, just for a moment. Um, for a moment, consider if the Spirit is at work in your life, right? Think, just think about your own personal Christian walk, right? You're just, you're, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is the Spirit at work in you? If so, how is the Spirit at work in your life? Now, here's what you need to know. Your life in the Spirit and the Spirit at work in you is not passive, but it is active. And he, he, I was thinking through this point, and it's a parenthetically thinking. Um, if there's a person of the Trinity that is not focused on enough within American evangelicalism, and again, it's an opinion, think it's the Holy Spirit. I think this is especially true in the Midwest. And we will do our souls well by taking time to see what Paul is getting at regarding the work of the Spirit in the life of the justified person. The person who's been justified by faith, who has the Spirit. What's Paul getting at? We need to get this personally. We've got to wake up and see that our work, excuse me, that the work of God is not just a historical event. But God, the Holy Spirit, is always at work in His people. And His Spirit is at, always at work in the church. Paul presses the point in verse 3. And with rhetorical flair, Paul says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you, Galatians, are you, Christian, now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's like, the Spirit was given to you when you were justified. Now, why would you ever think your works... The flesh could perfect you. And then this is your this is the you should have known better statement. Point being, the Galatians started well, but they were not continuing in their faith well. They were given the Holy Spirit, but at some point they stopped relying on the empowering presence of the Spirit. Theologian um, Tom Schreiner explains Paul's position well, I think. Um, he says this, the, the Christian life follows the same course, whether the issue is justification or sanctification. It is not as if justification is through the Spirit and by faith, and sanctification is by works and human effort, right? Notice how in his statement he's disregarding the Spirit and faith and sanctification. And sanctification, we haven't come up with this word yet. We haven't bumped into this yet in Galatians, but basically meaning how you work out your salvation. Are you becoming more holy? What does that mean? He continues, both justification and sanctification are due to the Spirit's work and are a result of faith. 
so here, here is um, the million-dollar question that needs to be resolved, right? Here's the million-dollar question. What place do our works have in the Christian life? Right? What works, what place does works play in, our, in the Christian life? Like for example, <laughs> just when you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, the Bible's full of moral commands. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. You know, Paul's, read Paul's letters. We see that. Uh, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. Ten Commandments. If the grace of God can only justify us, and as Christians we are to be reliant upon the Spirit by faith, what about our works? Do we dismiss works? That's the question. Answer, no. No, we do not reject our works as a necessary part of our Christian life. Our works play a critical role to confirm the justifying work of God in our life. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the foundation of our good works. I mean, if there's a point that the Galatian churches weren't getting, it's that you weren't relying on the Spirit. You were doing things, but it was void of that foundation. The Spirit is the foundation of work of our works. Therefore, works are evidence of the faith God has given to you. And it is the Spirit's work in your life which causes you to change, right? Like, the, the Christian life, changing in the Christian life isn't pull up the bootstraps and get her done. It's dependence upon the spirit the, the spirit convicts of sin the spirit reveals more of christ to your heart the spirit takes the heart and continues to breathe gospel life onto your heart a, a christian submits to the work of the spirit so that external works conform to the will of god let me say that again a christian submits to the work of the spirit so that external works conform to the will of God, and with the help of the Spirit, we do work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, Colossians 1.10, and we are to put on Christ and put away sin and make no room in our life to allow our desires to cause us to sin, Romans 13.14. So our works are a part of our ongoing growth as Christians. That is absolutely true. But our works are always submitted to and flowing from the Holy Spirit. Let me say it as blunt and clear as possible. You cannot say that you've been justified by God and not have the Spirit at work in you to change. You cannot say Jesus has saved you without being inwardly and outwardly changed. Yeah, I thought about this in terms of like DNA. Now, I'm not a, a scientist, obviously, um, but let's just try to give some basic scientific principles about DNA. That's about all I can handle. But maybe think about that. You you all were born with specific DNA. Now there's similarities in our DNA, but at the end of the day, kind of like our thumbprints, they're all distinct. So there's something that makes it distinct. Um, our DNA 
tells us we have blue eyes, green eyes, we're short, tall, dark hair, light color hair, or no hair at all, right? You get a receding hairline. I think you get my point. When a person is justified by God, they are giving, they are given a specific, or excuse me, different DNA. Spiritually speaking, when a person is saved, he or she is utterly changed forever, forever, and a person with new DNA responds to the DNA within them. You changed, and so we respond to the change. Now, at this moment, I imagine the question could come up in some of your minds. I know it came up in mine. And Pastor Sean, I think I have faith, but I keep sinning. I think I have faith, but my life's a mess. I think I have faith, but there are so many ups and downs in life, right? Who hasn't experienced ups and downs in the Christian life. Now, what do we make of all this? What do I make of all this? If you're asking that question. So listen, maturing in your walk with God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is not easy. It's good, but it's not easy. In the marathon of life, I think a question to ask is this. What is your trajectory since becoming a Christian? Where are you headed? When, when you step back and take the long view, where have you been heading? Your Christian life is not perfect here on earth. It is not perfect, but it is being perfected. That's what it says in the text. It's being perfected day by day, moment by moment, from one decision to the next. Grace is abundant for the struggling saint who has the Holy Spirit within them. Perhaps Romans 9 can provide a measure of joy you know, that comes from the work of the Spirit. It says this, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in the flesh. When you were saved, you were no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. When the Spirit is in you, God dwells in you, Christian. And how do you know that God will keep you to the end, right, in this marathon of life? Here's another precious passage about the work of the Holy Spirit. I love this. I absolutely love this. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed upon Him, when you were justified, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. And until we receive that inheritance, the Holy Spirit keeps us, the Holy Spirit seals us. What we read is that the moment you were justified, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for God for all eternity. And between now and glory, God is at work in you so that you will continually conform into the likeness of Jesus. I've had March Madness on my mind, right? <laughs> Pull out the brackets. I got several I'll be doing. Selection Sundays later today. It's a tradition in my family. It came to mind in part because I love, you know, college basketball, and I began to think about all the times Paul compares the Christian life to being an athlete. 
Here's how I feel about it in basketball terms as it pertains to the point I've been making about the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, before Sharice and I were married, I, I had coached various sports, including basketball. Um, I love basketball. I love coaching in general. Um, you know, I grew up in the gym shooting buckets at the Y. I mean, I was a gym rat. Uh, you know, but because of my lack of, you know, frankly, athletic ability, height, you know, I just didn't have the stuff to make it past high school. But I could coach. You know, I, I loved coaching. I love what coaches are able to do with athletes in terms of helping them along. And here are my some of my observations about coaching a healthy team. Um, if there is a principle I emphasize more than others in basketball, it is trust. For our team to be healthy, each player needed to trust the other players. For example, if a specific play was being called for one player, you know, to score a basket, the other four guys needed to do their job, and that one player needed to believe or trust in those other four guys to do their job so that he can get open, shoot the shoot it, and make the back make the bucket. There's trust. Another principle I emphasized was their effort. Throughout a basketball game, you can you know, experience ups and downs, right? You can be down 10 points, and if you want to make up that deficit, you got to put effort into the game to get the game tied and then take the lead. Even if you have a 10-point lead, right? If you got a 10-point lead, you got to exert energy. You got to have effort in order to keep that lead. From the tip-off to the last quarter of the last second of the quarter, players need to exert effort while also trusting. And when the final, final buzzer goes off, there is rest. Our Christian life is similar in this sense. We are to trust or have faith in God while exerting effort until the final buzzer. But un unlike basketball players, our effort is accompanied by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that sees us through until the end while we are also actively at work, working out our salvation to the praise of praise and glory of God. So let me pause for a moment and ask, what is the biblical connection between the example of faith, Abraham, and the active work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the person who's been justified before God? The last verse in our passage gives us the connection. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Holy Spirit is connected to the promise given to Abraham. So we have seen the example of faith the promise that comes from faith, now we read how the curse was removed by faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 10 to 12, Paul repeats his point that if you are going to abide by the law, you better follow every part of the law. If you don't, you're cursed. But of course, because no one can observe the law perfectly, everyone is under a curse because of the law, right? It's, been, it's Paul's point up to this point in Galatians. It's the same argument Paul has been making since the beginning. And in verse 13, we have a remarkable, we have a remarkable gospel statement. Here it is. Just listen to this. Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See that? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So two questions. What does it mean to be cursed? And what does it mean to be redeemed? Let's deal with them one at a time. To be cursed is to be denounced by God. Because of sin and your sin nature, you are should should be denounced by God. You should be utterly done away with. You are cursed. You deserve nothing good. You know, people walk around with the expectation they deserve this or that, right? People act like there was never a curse on their life. In, in our day, right, 21st century, entitlement is the problem. But the truth is, you do not deserve to be entitled to anything. But you deserve a curse. And the reality is, you deserve nothing. You deserve to be denounced. You deserve the curse because of your rebellion and sin. Now, all of that might seem hopeless, but there is hope. When it says in verse 13 that Christ redeemed you from the curse, it is saying that Christ took on your curse at the cross, and in exchange, God gave you life. He gave you faith. In exchange, God gave you the most precious thing, person you could ever have, which is Christ himself. And he also gave you the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. If you want to understand the magnitude of the cross, you need to understand the depth of your sin, right? When you begin to understand the depth of your sin, then you'll be humbled by the work of Christ on the cross for you. Christian, when you start to realize you do not de- that you deserve to be cursed, then you will see the glories of Jesus on the cross. When you begin to understand the depth of your sin, then you realize you do not deserve what God has offered to you through his son, Jesus. And then you end up receiving all that God has. And you realize it's a gracious gift. I don't deserve it. But God is gracious and kind. I really think we need to get this point. By faith, the curse has been removed, but it's a gracious gift. And what we really deserve is to be cursed. But praise be to God, because of Christ, the curse has been removed. I began my sermon saying the Galatians should have known better. They should have known that to go back to the law was foolish. They should have known how to read their Old Testament. They should have known how to live in the reality granted to them by God, a life by faith in the Spirit. And so for us as a church, may we know better, right? We need to be reminded of the gospel every single day because we need to know better because we're fickle and we forget We need constant reminders. But by faith in Jesus, 
we know we are a part of God's family tree. By faith, we have the Spirit, and by faith, the curse has been removed. Therefore, may we live in the freedom bought for us by Jesus Christ. Let us pray.